Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, owner and user of Mint Mobile, with a special holiday message. If you sign up now for three months, you get three months free on every one of our plans, even unlimited. Now, I realize this is more of a holiday offer than it is a holiday message, but if you read between the lines, you can see a message in there. It says we love you. Visit mintmobile.com slash switch for the offer. Limited time, new customer offer. Activate within 45 days. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. Unlimited customers using more than 40 gigabytes per month will experience lower speeds. Video streams at 480p. See mintmobile.com for details. Hi, it's Rob the Face Radio Burgess, and welcome to this fantastic edition of the 80s Rewind Show podcast. I've got a real special guest for you today. I've got Clark Datchula of Johnny Hates Jazz, and we discuss writing Shattered Dreams, I Don't Want to Be a Hero, and his new album, Journey Songs. And at the end of the show, we've got a special treat for you. Clark has reimagined Shattered Dreams for the people of the Ukraine, and we're going to play you out at the end of the show with this amazing version. Please, if you can, donate to this fantastic and worthy cause. There'll be a donation link in the description below. Right. Cue the music. Here we go. Hey, I'm Jack Hughes from Wang Chung. Hey, everybody, this is Ivan from Men Without Hats. Hello, everybody, this is Francis Dunry from It Bites. Hi, everyone, this is Andy from Modern Romance. Hi, everyone, this is Charlene. Hi. This is Betty Seaton from Music to You. Hi, I'm Nick Haywood. Hi, this is Kevin from Fiction Factory. And you're listening to the 80s Rewind Show podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe so that you never miss an episode. It's time, it's time to bring you yet another amazing episode. And now, and now welcome your host, Rob, the face for Radio Burgess. Enjoy the show. Hello, hello, it's Stage Rewind Show with me, Rob the Face Radio Burgess, and welcome along to today's episode and thank you so much for joining me and i know you're joining me from bangladesh australia south africa france brazil and belgium and the united arab emirates israel denmark cambodia st vincent's trinidad tobago sweden somalia russia poland netherlands italy colombia the list goes on and on and on thank you so much for subscribing from all over the world and listen to the show i really really appreciate it don't forget, if you're going to message me, you can message me at the 8 one show at gmail.com. Link is in the description. If you want to say hi and just talk about the 80s. Also, as a special treat now, I've gone proper digital. You can get this episode on YouTube. So there's a link in the description below. If you go to YouTube, you can actually watch the episode as well where I'm talking to Clark. I'm getting modern. In my old age, I'm actually getting quite modern. I don't know how I'm doing it, but I'm doing it somehow. Anyway, today's show, like I said in the description, I'm talking to Clark Datchler from Johnny H. Jazz. We had a fantastic chat, and like I said, if you want to see it, pop over to the YouTube channel just on the link, and you can watch us chatting on there. Anyway, that's enough of me. Let's do it. The 80s Rewind Show podcast, where the past meets the present. So normally I start by saying, um, did you, were your parents musical? But your dad was a musician, wasn't he? Was he in the Stargazers first and then the Polka Dots? Is that right? That's right. The Stargazers were a, a band of some repute. I mean, so were the Polka Dots, but... The Stargazers um, were the first British band to have a number one hit on the UK chart. The the artists before that had been from the US. And the Stargazers went on to have other number one hits. um, And they had their own BBC radio show, which is the equivalent of having the Graham Norton show now. I mean, it being belonging to the Stargazers. You know, they were really big stars of the day. Um, But my dad wasn't really happy with the musical direction <laughs> all the way back to then. This is like the 1950s. So the same problems that all musicians have eventually. Um, and so he quit this incredibly successful band to join a new band called Polka Dots, who went on to win umpteen jazz vocalist awards, jazz vocal group awards. That's what they were. But then my dad was a sax and clarinet player as well. Great player. And um, and they recorded with the Beatles, with a young Jimmy Page, with more importantly in, for, for them, Ella Fitzgerald, Frank Sinatra, Joe Stafford, um, Peggy Lee. They were real proper jazzers. And, um, and so I grew up in a house, ironically, absolutely full to the brim of jazz. It's in my veins. I mean, it's, it's you know, the name Johnny Hates Jazz was completely accidental and never meant to cause offence, even though it did in the long <laughs> um, No, I, I mean, I've still got my – my dad passed away in 98, but I've still got his his vinyl records of Nat King Cole and Oscar Peterson and Sinatra, obviously, and Duke Ellington. And, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm well into it. That's wonderful. And your, 
so your dad was with the he works on some Beatles sessions. He was on the Long and Winding Road. Was he singing on that, or was he playing an instrument on that? One? No, he was singing on the Long and Winding Road. This is this is what I heard. I know for sure that he sang on "I Am the Walrus" um, in some of the really quirky stuff. Um, so, uh, and he told me a bit about that because because my dad had an interesting story. You know, they were stars of the fifties and early sixties, and the rise of rock and roll led by the Beatles really put the jazz world out of business for a while, for quite a long while. So he had a bittersweet relationship with the Beatles. Um, and it took many years for him to, to come to terms with, especially Lennon and McCartney's ability as writers. I think it was when Ella Fitzgerald covered Can't Buy Me Love and Sinatra covered Yesterday that he started to think again. And, 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 and also, more importantly, Many a animated discussion with his youngest son, uh, who was a huge Beatles fan, and 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 I don't think when I was young that I fully understood the pain he must have felt. Of I mean, it'd be the same as someone talking to me about how brilliant Take That were, and and but that whole generation of boy bands and girl bands brought an end to the eighties. So I have my own issues with that and I, and I so I understand it's my way of understanding how he must have felt sorry that was a very long-winded no 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 I love it <laughs> so were you uh, like influenced by your dad's records as a youngster or was it your own collection that really made you turn your head and say right music's my thing just like my dad I love it both both and probably the same for you Robbie you know it's the music that you we grew up as vinyl kids so you you didn't have access to anything and everything, any hour of the day. It was a very special thing to have access to, let alone buy a vinyl record. So I was exposed to my dad's record collection, which, like I said, was jazz and classical. He was a big fan of Ravel and Debussy, where all the jazzers were, so they are still my favourite composers, the French Impressionist composers. And, um, and then my brothers were really into soul and funk and reggae. So, yeah, so that was – I was very much exposed to – um, all manner of music. And I think that the things that really landed for me were the Isley Brothers, who were still, I think, one of the greatest bands in the world, really, really underrated for some strange reason. Earth, Wind and Fire, without a doubt. Um, and, uh, and Stevie Wonder, you know, he was, my, he was my hero, along with then my own discoveries, which were very much in the rock realm. I was the rock kid. But I was not, I was not um, tribal musically i think there is there always was tribalism and there still is I, I was not like that i didn't care what genre it was from if i if it was a good record or a good song i i was i was into it simple as that i mean i loved abba but at the same time i loved the sex pistols and i ended up in a band with one of the sex pistols so it's like it, but to me there was no weirdly the guy I was in the band with glenn matlock who was one of the original pistols was also into abba well, yeah so it's a, it, there's a great irony in that. It's a, I think amongst musicians, we all kind of just like whatever is we feel is good. So yeah, you've got the music that you love and the music you front, if you like, isn't it? Like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So if you had to pick an album that was a turning point for you, do you know which album that would be? I think it, there were many albums that were turning points. It's so difficult to say one, but when I was young, it would have been when I finally heard, because I was born in 64, so I wasn't aware of when some of the earlier Beatles were recorded. I found that out, you know, in the, right at the le- end of the 60s, beginning of the 70s. But Rubber Soul, I think, was the one that did it for me, the Beatles' Rubber Soul. Because that had, I mean, I love the album, um, as I love Revolver and, you know, Magical Mystery Tour and, and, and the White Album especially, but... And Abbey Road, actually, and, uh, <laughs> and all of them. But, but um, that album had a song on it called Nowhere Man, which Lennon said in retrospect he thinks was about himself. And I was really touched by that because I understood the message really clearly. I came from suburban London, and I think my greatest fear was disappearing, was, was just not being... Um, not important to the world, but important to myself first and foremost. And when he and I love the record. I love the actual recording. is unbelievably brilliant. It's the turning point for me of the Beatles from, you know, earlier Beatles, which I think is still great, 
to what became this incredibly adventurous and experimental and influential Beatles of the later 60s. And it just had it all for me. And as a very quickly, as, a, and as an aside, my dad used to sit me down and listen to jazz records and get me to click along with the record because for jazz, they were really into this concept of swing. So you hear a lot of people do jazz now. Sorry, I'm doing a quotation. <laughs> you know, you see at the Royal Albert Hall, they do kind of a you know, jazz evening with the London Philharmonic and some of these jazz singers come on and it doesn't swing. There's no feel to it. They're really capable singers and a brilliant orchestra, but it, they just don't connect in that way. But when you hear Nowhere Man, and this is true of early rock and roll, Bill Haley as an example, they really swing still. The influence of jazz is still there subliminally. And Ringo's playing on Nowhere Man is just so cool. I know we, everyone talks about it now. After years of him being, you know, put down, he is actually one of the greatest drummers ever. His feel is phenomenal. Anyway, you're absolutely no. right. It's a fantastic album. It's a very sparse album as well. It hasn't got loads of overdubs. It's very sparse. And I think it's that's, that's the- yeah, it's still them kind of, you know, I'm sure it wasn't around one microphone in the studio like the early stuff, but it still feels a bit like that. It's wonderful. And you're right. I mean, it, for me, it's uh, probably Rubber Soul, Revolver, and then Straight to Abbey Road. I think if I had to pick three to Desert Island, it would be those three. And funny enough, I'm named after a song on Revolver, Dr. Robert. So. Oh, how cool. What a great record. Very cool. You can't, Very about, cool. about a dentist that gave me LSD. But there we are. My dad was funny. <laughs> so were you sort of getting into songwriting at this early period as well? Were you sort of thinking about songs and constructing songs as well? Yeah, I started, I wrote my first song, I think, when I was eight. Certainly, I made a note in my diary, which I used to keep back then, um, which said, one day I'm going to be a successful musician like my dad. Um, and so I, I started writing at that point. I mean, it was really basic stuff. I would never let anyone hear it. I don't think anyone could hear it because there's no means to record it back then. Um, and um, uh, I think what I really got from the Beatles especially was this concept. And this is what was revolutionary about the Beatles and the Kinks and the Moody Blues and the Who and the bands of that time was that they wrote their own material. We've got to remember that before that, there were writers and performers. Yeah. And even Burt Bacharach and Hal David, who I grew up listening to and love, was still in that kind of realm. And, um, and so... That was, that's all I wanted to do. I didn't want to write for other people. Why would I want to, I really, why would I want to do that? (laughs) I tried that a little bit in the earlier 2000s with these big writing teams when they write for other people. In fact, I wrote with Take That. And um, it was an awful experience. I, I, I just don't, I'm not interested. I want to, if I can't express it myself, then it, it's meaningless to me. So I, it has to connect with me. And, and this is why, I, again, I think the Beatles were so, Lennon and McCartney were so important, and George Harrison, was that they were able to um, not just do it for themselves, but demonstrate it to a younger generation, you know. And we all thought, I remember Sting saying this in, in an interview recently, you know, that we all thought, I could do that. Mm. With, you know, with enough talent and enough, hopefully talent anyway <laughs> and, and, and a degree of luck and all the rest of it and happenstance and uh, so yeah uh, I started writing pretty early I mean when you think about it as well that would be the 60s version of the Sex Pistols you know they came along gave a we can do it ethos and then there was bands yeah, everywhere totally and what was really weird about the the emergence of punk was that it disappeared so quickly you know whereas rock and roll 60s rock and roll continued and evolved and you could argue that punk became new romantics and all the rest of it i think that's very tenuous um and but i think an an important thing is when rock and roll emerged it didn't try and destroy in reputation that which came before it it was just doing its own thing whereas punk was very gave great emphasis on putting down the the likes of prog rock and 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 i think that was a massive mistake it was it, it was enough in and of itself. I know it was all about attitude, and that was a big part of it. But the attitude about bringing down the establishment, I mean, I think Anarchy in the UK and God Save the Queen are absolutely brilliant songs, brilliant songs. That was enough. That was a big enough message. You didn't have to 
you know, put down Genesis at the time. Genesis are brilliant. You know, it's like, it's, this is what I, this is what I didn't get. So anyway, that's, that's my feeling. That's where the, that's where the similarity ends. That's it. You can't be a Pink Floyd fan back then. (laughs) No, and you should have been, you should have been if you were into the pistols or you know whoever the jam early jam you you should have been into pink for it because they were so related they're just amazing so did yeah. you go to piano or guitar first or was it straight to singing or what instrument sort of inspired you first it was guitar first and my dad when he got out of the music business when he was forced out by the rise of rock and roll he got into um another business and he in that business he found, I mean, literally found a uh, a guitar under a bed. He wasn't repossessing anyone, anything like that. <laughs> he, he, he wasn't, but he was involved in property and someone had vacated a property and they'd literally left a guitar under the bed and he brought it home <clears throat> knowing because the property had to be, you know, um, vacated. And he said, you know, look, I found this. So it's actually two guitars. It was an electric, very inexpensive electric and a very old acoustic. And he said, I found these. Um, you know, you can play them, but if they're claimed within three months, they're going, you know, and I understood that. But I took the electric and I raced upstairs and I put it under my bed, my own bed, you know, and that was my ticket. You know, I started to teach myself to play guitar. <clears throat> And they weren't ever claimed, so I've still got that guitar. <laughs> and, uh, it's in the attic now. It needs to be completely overhauled. But um, uh, So, I, yeah, I learned on guitar, and my dad uh, gave uh, paid for me to have piano lessons at school, and I was useless. I was <laughs> a I mean, I failed my piano. I was at my music O-level. I was, you know, I, and and so to teach me music, the piano teacher, when he realized I wasn't going anywhere, um, suggested I learn flute, which is one line of music, much easier. So I did learn flute and that did help me understand some theory, but guitar was my thing. And, um, and it was not until later that I took up piano by just teaching myself when I could teach myself like on guitar. Um, I conceptualized it much better and I became a keyboard player. That's my main thing now. That's crazy. And what a turnaround. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, I've actually, I've got a guitar here. You won't be able to see this. Um, I just bought a new guitar because I haven't owned a guitar for a long time. So I'm going to kind of reacquaint myself because I played some guitar on the Turn Back the Clock album. I play guitar on Don't Let It End This Way. Um, so I'm still playing at that point. That's beautiful. People listening, is that a Blue Les Paul you got there? It's a blue Les Paul. It's not a Gibson. It's an Epiphone, which is a less expensive. But they're the, they're the cool ones. <laughs> yeah, I, you know, the Epiphones are great, actually. They're really <laughs> So when did you start gigging? When did you sort of st- start putting yourself on stage and getting out there and actually trying to perform? Well, I, I first did it when I spent, a, when I left school, I left school at 16. Um, my dad said, you can leave school at 16, um, which I desperately wanted to do, providing you get five O levels. So I got five O levels. That was my only focus. Five, more, <laughs> five, o, no more, just get out. Yeah. And, um, and then I spent like three months at a, at a polytechnic college and then I quit that. And in that three months I did my first performance in the theater there. But, um, uh, really my first proper performance came when I released my first single when I was 17, I'd written this song when I was 16 called you fooled him once again. And, um, that came out on an indie label in London. And my first performance was at the Lyceum Ballroom. Um, it was big. It was a, there were a lot of people there. And I did a PA where I sang to the backing track. And there was another singer who supported me on that record called Juliet Roberts, who was from a bank of working week, a jazz funk band. I was in the jazz funk world, I should say. That was my thing. Same world, the same British jazz funk world at Level 42 came out of and Imagination and Links and freeze and that was my world um which was kind of an edgy jazz funk it was british it was a raw raw rough around the edges i really liked it and uh so julia roberts was from that world as well she did backing vocals and she was on stage with me which was a relief because i was very nervous and and the stage was flooded by the audience at the end of it you know young people especially young ladies you know 
wanting my autograph. I didn't know what to do. I was not, hey, you know, I've made it now. No, I was totally unconfident, you know. <laughs> and my, my the record company boss at the time, Billy, Billy Russell, passed away now, thrust a bunch of um, photographs of me in my hand and said, sign them. <laughs> and I, I looked at him and I said, what now? He said, yes, now. <laughs> thrust me into the crowd and, and that was my first experience. So it was, a, it was a, a very illuminating. I've, I've heard your single, that first single. It's on YouTube and I had to listen to it. Um, and is it right you was influenced by uh, Bobby Cladwell? Was he a big Bobby Caldwell. Col- Caldwell, Bobby sorry. Caldwell. Yeah. And, yes, the, the, and it was the song, uh, What You Won't Do For Love, which I listened yeah. to, which I thought was the, like the sort of closest to that song. And then when I heard that song by uh, Bobby Cladwell, I thought, I know that song straight away. It popped in my head. I knew it. And then I thought, who does it sound like? And it reminds me of George Benson and Boz Skaggs at the same time. Oh, interesting. And I was into both of them. Well, so that you're a musically educated, Robbie, to make that comparison, which is absolutely true. <laughs> and Coldwell is a guitarist, and like George Benson. And, you know, the, the kind of the, the thing that Boz Skaggs had with Lowdown and, um, and Michael McDonald had with the Doobies and, and then his own stuff, you know, was very, uh, was influencing me very much. And I wanted to be in that world, really. Um, and in actual fact, if I may mention this, I do a live stream every two weeks called Journey Songs. I've been doing it since lockdown. It's on my own YouTube and Facebook channels, Clark Thatcher Official. And the last one I did was actually all about You Fooled Him Once Again. So I tell the whole story there of, of how it came to be. Um, but it's actually the, the where you can hear it now. You can stream it on an album called Funk Classics, Volume 1. And and, I, and when I found it on there, I was because I'd lost track of the record. I don't own it or anything. It's you know, it was a different era where you sign your life away when you do a record. And um, when I found it on Funk Classics, next to some really cool R and B and funk tracks, I was really touched because because only the people who compiled the album would have heard it and said it belongs on there. I didn't write to anyone saying, "Yeah, this is a funk classic." Or so I, I just didn't know, you know. And uh, so it was really, I'm glad it kind of hit home. I'm glad it hit home that it's, it's landed in, in that world. So was it signed to Bluebird Records at the time? Is that the one that? Yeah, Bluebird Music, the publisher, Blue Ink Records was the label. And it was a, a little um, record store uh, just off the Edgware Road in London that dealt in import soul and reggae. And they released a few records and I, I was one of them. And um, it was a, it was a really weird world and lovely world for me because you walked into their offices and it was a record store and uh, you know it was full of it was full of you know r&b fans and rasters and you know everyone there listening to music as you did in a record store back then as you remember robbie you'd go in there and they'd be actually playing the music or you could ask them to put on a record so you could see if you liked it and and so it was a very tangible experience in a record store and then upstairs with the little label and i my when you sign a record deal, this is certainly how it was in the past, you get an advanced payment to keep you going. And then you have to pay that back from the royalties you make from your record. And my advanced payment was one pound. <laughs> That's fantastic. If the label was tiny, they didn't have money to give me, you know, something to keep going. I had to continue to do the jobs I was doing back then, which is working in record stores, actually. So, um, I, uh, yeah, that was my introduction. If only more record companies run that way, you know, from a record shop, so they know what people actually want to buy. <laughs> totally. You know what? There's a lot to be said for that. And uh, that's a really interesting idea. Whether that will happen again, we'll, we'll have to see. <laughs> and is this where you met Rusty Egan? Does Rusty Egan come into your story at this point? Yeah. So um, Rusty heard you fooled him once again, thanks to one of my brothers, Ash, who, who worked in a very high fashion store on the King's Road. The King's Road was the fashion street back in the 60s, well, the 70s and 80s, especially the 80s. And this was early 80s, 81. And um, Rusty was in Visage and had been in a band called The Rich Kids, also with Midura. And interestingly, the guy Matlock, who I, you know, ended up in a band with again. Um, so um, Ash played Rusty, you fooled him once again, and Rusty was beginning to produce people. And he really liked it, thought I had promise. And so he kind of took me under his wing and he, he introduced me to electronic music. And 
So there I, and he loved the fact I was into soul music. Like a lot of the electronic artists of the 80s, they will describe themselves as soul boys, spanned out especially, you know, but we all were. And, but interestingly, musically, you rarely get that. And, but Rusty, you know, <clears throat> did some recording with me at Trident Studios where he was based. And um, I did more performances, you know, through, through him. Camden Palace, which is now Coco's, and uh, and other places, and that led directly to going to LA for a brief time. I was a songwriter out there, as you can imagine, as from what I said earlier. I love being in LA. It was great as a you know young lad, seventeen, eighteen year old guy, but writing for other people. And I wrote for Martha Reeves and the Drifters, and it it just wasn't my thing. So I came back and, um, you know, I was still signed to Rusty and, and answered an advertisement in the Melody Maker, which to anyone watching who doesn't remember, and you should remember, was <laughs> a music-specific newspaper, like the Enemy and Sounds were, such times. And that's where you, you looked in the classified ads at the back to see if you could join a band. And there was a, an advertisement for a singer needed for a band that was signed to a major label. Well, that was music to my ears, quite literally. <laughs> didn't know what it was. Um, and I didn't think I was much of a singer. I was a better songwriter. I was a songwriter who sang. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, owner and user of Mint Mobile. And I am recording this message on my phone. I'm literally on my Mint phone. Why? Because fancy recording studios cost money. And if we spent money on things like that, we couldn't offer you screaming deals. Like if you sign up now for three months, you get three months free on every one of your plans, even unlimited. Visit mintmobile.com slash switch. Limited time, new customer offer. Activate within 45 days. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. Unlimited customers using more than 40 gigabytes per month will experience lower speeds. Video streams at 480p. See mintmobile.com for details. And I still am, as far as I'm concerned. But I answered the advertisement. I sent in this recording I'd done with Rusty, which was this kind of electronic funk record. And um, and they heard it, and they liked me. And that was my introduction to uh, Rack Records, which is Mickey Most's label, Mickey Most, who was, until recently, the most successful producer of all time. Yeah, he's amazing. Yeah. And, uh, and, and I signed with, and I joined a band called Hot Club and Hot Club had Glenn in it, Glenn Matlock and James Stevenson from Chelsea and Generation X and Gene Loves Jezebel later and Calvin Hayes, who was the drummer in the band, Mickey's son and eventually a founder member along with myself and Mike Nacito and Johnny Hates Jazz. So it was, it was all kind of one singular path. So was it right Mike was working at Rack at the time? Mike was an engineer, young engineer. He eventually became chief engineer. Um, he, Mike's from the States, although he was born in Germany and grew up in England. He's very American still um, in his accent and some of his outlook, which is very cool. And um, uh, Mickey, basically, when, he, when I'd been in Hot Club, we'd released a record and Mickey had agreed to give me a solo deal as well. He suggested I start doing my demos, my demo recordings um, at Rack with a young engineer called Mike Macito. And it would help me and it would help him because it gave, gave him experience. And, and me and Mike bonded very quickly. Um, so I did loads of demos, a couple of singles on Rack that Mickey produced. Um, didn't really get anywhere. But unbeknownst to me, I mean, I still knew Calvin because Calvin and I had been in Hot Club. But Calvin and Mike had started working together as a production team. So there I was, you know, writing my own music and recording it. And Mike and Calvin were beginning to experiment with their own productions. And um, then, uh, you know, one thing led to another. And they started working on a record called Me and My Foolish Heart with another rack engineer. Actually, he was a chief engineer for a long time, Phil Thornalley. And Phil ended up being in The Cure for a while and then becoming a songwriter in his own right, successful songwriter. Um, and a producer. He produced Prefab Sprout, you know, um, the album with When Love Breaks Down on it and uh, 
So he was, you know, he was an achiever. But Phil also wanted to be an artist. And so they had worked on this song, Me and My Foolish Heart, just for a short while. And Phil, you know, never really saw himself as part of the band and he was doing other things. And so Mike and Calvin thought, well, they needed another singer. And again, I was someone who never thought of myself as a singer. Well, ironically, about six weeks before, I had been, uh, Rack had been taken over by a German guy, not, not um, in ownership, but in terms of day-to-day running. And he didn't think I was earning my keep. So he, he terminated my agreement, which was a really depressing moment. So ironically, as I left the building, I could hear Mike and Calvin working on me and my foolish heart. And I went and I said, guys, what's that? I, they, they, I was ashen faced. So they said, you know, what's up? And I said, this is what's happened. And they were shocked because I knew them well. And I said, what are you working on? They said, we distract me and my foolish heart working on it with film. And I said, it that's, sounds good. And weirdly, I said, if you ever need another singer on it, you know where I am. I don't know why I said that. Six weeks later, they call me up. Clark, you know, Phil doesn't want to do this. We've got, we've barely got a vocal on here. It was just a rough guide. Do you want to give it a go? So I went in and it worked. And Foolish Heart came out as a single on rack. Wasn't a success. But there's something about the collaboration and the sound that I thought, I, I'm going to give this a go. So I said to Mike and Calvin, let me go away, write a few songs for Johnny H. Jazz. Let's see what we come up with or I come up with. And so the first song I came up with was, was, um, was Shattered Dreams. And that was very much my way of what I brought to the table in combination with what we had achieved sonically with Johnny Hates Jazz with me and my foolish heart. So that was, that you asked me one question, it's set in one time and I took you all the way to 1986, which is when we... I love it. I love it. Do you think like Shattered Dreams would have been written if you hadn't just been sacked and stuff like that. Was it one of those things where you, you had it on your mind when you were writing? Well, it's a great question. Probably it maybe it might have done because I, I was very influenced by the music of the time. Like I was a young guy very much plugged into what was happening, which is true of all the young artists today. They're plugged into the now. They won't in the future. They will they will become the older artists and they will have to deal with that. Um, but I was really, you know, I was, I was in the thick of it. And so maybe Shattered Dreams would have come about. But you know what? There's, <clears throat> there's an interesting thing when you're making music. It's really, I've always found it good to know what you're writing for. You kind of, it's not just, it, it's a lovely thing to say, I just want to ex- express myself. But music's about communication. So you want to feel that there's a, an idea behind how are we going to get it to people? It's not, it, 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 that's not me kind of trying to, you know, gild the lily of the idea of just selling records and making money. I would say it wasn't, that wasn't, that was way down the list for me. I wanted to survive, but I, I wanted to be recognized and communicate with people. That was a really big thing. So, so the idea that, you know, the three of us said, you know, let's keep this going. Let's give it another go after me and my foolish heart was, you know, does give you a sense of forward motion and momentum. I think if I just left the label as I did, I would have needed to find another avenue. Um, and I don't know what that would have been. So you went away and wrote a bunch of songs. Uh, how did Shattered Dreams come about? Was it lyrics first? Was it melody first? Did it all sort of just click or was it a dream and you wrote it down? How did that work? No, which is interesting how that does happen. Yeah. You know, <laughs> yeah. Um, I wrote it in this room and I wrote it on a piano, which is over there, which you can't see. It's still there. I've got my old Steinway next to me, my Steinway Grand, which has been with me many years. But the piano I learned on, my Kemble, my dad's, my mom and dad's Kemble is still over there. I'm actually looking after my mom now in her older age. So I've set up a studio in the room where I used to have a, a rudimentary recording set up as a, as a kid. Um, so it's, it's full of vibes and memories here. Um, 
So Shattered Dreams, I was, I was writing it on the piano over there. And my dad came in and he didn't used to do this. He always gave me space. We talked a lot about music and he guided me when he felt it was appropriate. But he came in, he said, what's that you're working on? I said, it's called Shattered Dreams, Dad. And he went quiet and he said, I think you've written your first hit. And you know what? Most people in the music business, once they heard it, said it was going to die a death. It was going to crash. Didn't stand a chance. Even Mickey Most, who was a great supporter of mine, didn't think it was going to do anything. Um, so I did a demo of it on my you know, rudimentary recording setup, four-track cassette recorder. I had one synthesizer, which is a Casio. It needs to be repaired. He said 1,000. That ended up on all of Turn Back the Clock, the record, throughout. That keyboard is now revered. <laughs> and the music, it typically, you know, the it's like, it's like, you know, ABBA at the time was scorned by, you know, the serious music fans. And now they're uplifted. Oh, yes, of course, Benny Bjorn, fantastic writers. I never thought <laughs> at the time, but I do. So Casio's are like that. Um, sorry, that's a bit of a, an aside. And, and so, and then we did our own demo, the band up at rack and we we pl- actually is that right yes we did um and anyway we what we decided to do was um to see if we should go with a label that really wanted to support this because mickey didn't feel we were going to do it with shadow dreams so um we organized a um an acoustic um show at ronnie scott's jazz club which we thought was very clever of us being called Johnny Hates Jazz. <laughs> nice. And we invited labels to come and see us at a lunch. It was lunchtime in the week. And two labels came. In other words, two people. And Ronnie Scott's is not a small place. <laughs> it's not. <no. laughs> um, one of them was from a label I don't remember. And another was from a label called Virgin Records. And there we were doing an acoustic rendition of the songs of me and my foolish heart, but specifically the songs that I'd written at that time, Shattered Dreams, Turn Back the Clock, um, I Don't Want to Be a Hero, Don't Say It to Love was one of the first ones. And um, and the, the guy from the other label got up and left halfway through, which was really soul-destroying. One person left. But that person stayed until the end. And his name was John Wooler. And in all honesty, John was encouraged to come by someone called Caroline True, who worked at Virgin and was a friend of ours and ended up being George Michael's right-hand person. Um, she's now an incredible photographer, actually, in her own right. And um, John liked us. And, and we liked John as well. We got on very well immediately. And John said let me play this to my superiors because he was a junior A&R man at that time. And they didn't really get it. They didn't get it. So John said, look, can you at least come and see them do another performance? So we, my dad actually organized a studio for us in London to do this in. And Mike couldn't make it. He was an engineer at Rack Studios. He couldn't, he had to, you know, when he was told to work. So it was just me and Calvin. And um, John Wooler came with a guy called Jeremy LaSalle and someone else from Virgin. Jeremy LaSalle was the senior A&R man. And they sat and listened to us and there was deathly silence in between each one. Or sometimes they would stop us halfway through and say, could we hear another one? <laughs> wow. It's brutal. We did it. And uh, yeah, brutal. Yeah. And and actually, at the end of that, thanks partly to John's insistence and Caroline True's insistence, they signed us on a singles deal. They didn't believe we would ever make it to an album. It was really the, you know, it, I think in part it was a way to shut John and Caroline up, to just give us the singles deal, not spend any money on it of, of, of any note. Um, we were ensconced at Rack and Mickey most still allowed us to work there for next to nothing, if not nothing, which is so good of them. And so we, we recorded Shattered Dreams and, um, and it came out. It was released as a single and 
in spring of 1987. And it took a long time to get into the top 40. We had to really persevere in different ways to get it into the top 40, which you had to do in order to get to force radio on to play it, to force them to playlist it. Because we were just getting what's called spot plays before, play here and a play there. Um, and we went around the country. We promoted as much as we could. You know, it was, very, it was a different time then. It was, it, was, uh, it was, there was no internet, of course. You know, you were very much radio dependent. TV was a luxury. And we did a video, which we didn't like at the time. We really didn't like it. Fortunately, it made it into the top 40. And at that point, the public could hear it. And the public could hear it because Radio 1 had to play it, whether they liked it or not. <laughs> Unfortunately, some of the DJs really championed us. It was not, it was, you know, they were, there were some people who really did. Mike Reed, Peter Powell, Gary Davis um, were, you know, real supporters. And David Jensen, actually. And, um, and uh, the public decided they wanted it. They liked it. And uh, it kept going up. It's, in the UK, it stayed at number five for three weeks, which probably doesn't sound these days, you know, like a big achievement because everything's about number one. You know, of course, it was then as well. But Shattered Dreams, what was different about Shattered Dreams compared to a lot of our peers who were new bands at that time is that it just caught fire all around the world. It did, yeah. It became a bigger hit in many other countries than it was in, in Britain. And then I Don't Want to Be a Hero followed it up and became a bigger hit in some countries than Shattered Dreams, unbeknownst to the UK. And then Turn Back the Clock, the same thing. In some countries, it was a number one. In the UK, it got to 11. It was our Christmas single. It got to 11. And although it's now a really well-known song, over the years, it's become really well-known. Um, it was a big, it was a massive hit in some of the Scandinavian countries and so there you go. That's, that's great. As a songwriter and a musician, obviously your early influences were sort of funk and soul. Was it a difficult transition for you to go over to this sort of pop music? Did you, was you happy with the transition or was it the direction you were just going at the time and you didn't mind? Or So it was a very easy transition. And the transition was simplified by a couple of facts. One, I was a keyboard player by that time, so I was well into synths. And I liked, you know, Fade to Grey, that Rusty was part of, uh, I was really into, um, to cut a long story short, I really was into, didn't really get into Spandau after that, but that was like, you know, proper where I thought it was at. But the record that did it for me was Love on Your Side by the Thompson Twins. And, and because I could hear the soul element in it, it the groove was totally that. And, and I, I really, really, again, I, did, I didn't really love the Thompson Twins after that. It, although I bought Dr. Doctor, I think, and, you know, it wasn't the same love on your side was it. It was great. I still regard that as one of the greatest records. Fantastic. And Tom, who worked, who recorded at Rack a lot, and Mike works with as a young engineer, you know, really, I think, has been incredibly influential. He's a tremendous cable player, a tremendous producer and mind in that world. So, so it was easy. To me, it was like that was the bridge. It was like, oh, I get it. I get it. I can still be me but with synths and drum machines. <laughs> Great. Yeah. I mean, what's wonderful is obviously the, the music's been going for, I mean, it's creeping up to 40 years, let's be honest. But recently, um, last year, you released Shattered Dreams for the Ukraine, which is a wonderful version of your song. Um, I'm going to put a donation link in the show notes below, by the way, anyone that's listening to the iPod version or the video, just give it a link and donate there. Uh, that's a wonderful version of those songs. And I was thinking about it as a concept wider than that as well and i was thinking about um i don't want to be a hero and i was thinking about the russian people fighting in a war they don't want to fight in a lot of people have made that connection said why don't you do something etc you know and i just don't think they're going to hear it i think that's the problem and really they need to hear it and because a lot of them feel that way without a doubt and the the, the irony of this is that you know that in the the genre that is now called synthwave which essentially is 80s inspired you know, music of the present or the past 20, 10, 20 years. Some of the, some of the best bands of the synthwave movement have come out of Russia. I mean, there's a band called Tesla Boy who've been around for a long time. They're really, really good. And 
you know, in, in this wonderful day and age where, you know, we're led to believe that music has been democratized, but actually the big corporations control it more than ever, you're never going to hear them unless you stumble across them on, you know, streaming sites. And so it'd be, I, I think there, there would be an absolute openness to hearing that record amongst a certain demographic in Russia. You know, I think that for me, what I didn't, I, I don't want to do is, you know, music is, should be about bringing people together. So Shadow Dreams of Ukraine worked for me because it wasn't divisive. It was about dealing with a humanitarian crisis. It could have been dedicated to what happened in Syria, in Yemen. You know, I, I, I often feel that I should have done something for those conflicts. I was very involved in the environmental movement, so that was kind of where my focus was. Um, but I finally got around to something that was something that would benefit people who are victims of war. And you're right, Hero maybe will yet play a part. I'll have to think about that again now you've mentioned it. I mean, yeah, Little Big are a fantastic Russian band. They went went to represent Russia in the 2020 Eurovision, but unfortunately because of COVID, they didn't perform. But they're, they're a brilliant band. The videos are hilarious as well, if you get a chance to check them out. I will, um, I will. Yeah. Before we go, can we just talk about Journey Songs 1, your last album that came out? It's a great album. Really, really great. I was playing it the other day. Um, Heart of Hearts, that is a fantastic track. Um, I just, it's, it's really, really good. And it's very reminiscent of your Johnny H Jazz days as well. It's got a real flavour of the old days. Was that sort of intentional or is it just the style now? Well, Journey Songs 1 is, I didn't put this on, you've probably streamed it. I didn't put this, I didn't put it on the CD either because it's available as a CD as well. But it's actually a, an amalgamation, a, a, a compilation of the solo recordings I did after I left Johnny H Jazz. Because if you remember, I left quite quickly. And so when I did an album called Rain Dance, I, ha- I was still in Johnny Hayes jazz mode. I was the songwriter in the band. So I brought, a, and, and the kind of, a lot of the sonic signature, though not all, because Mike and Calvin absolutely brought, you know, an enormous amount to it as producers. But some of the sonic signature was mine with um, what I did in my home studio. So I kind of brought that with me and made this album called Rain Dance, which had which I traveled the world to make and involves some incredible musicians on it. You know, a, a lot of the musicians who played with Michael Jackson were on that album. Wow. And, um, and so it was a very natural thing that a lot of it sounded like that. So I, I, there were a lot of recordings from that time, you know, early 90s, that I, you know, it, the world was changing. The 80s were over and they were, they were being ended very categorically because the music industry needed to or decided they were going to transition into what I thought was something that actually stemmed out of Stockache and Waterman. And that is where you have a group of people who make a record for a performer and that performer fronts it, but they don't actually make the records. They just sing on it. Well, that's become the norm now, the norm since then and that's not to say everyone in the 90s did that but it was the transition and it was weird because the basically i got caught up in that you know it was like it was there was there wasn't an openness as there used to be and there should have been because i'd been you know very successful so anyway i put them all together on journey songs one remastered etc and heart of hearts was one of those songs where it should have been something. I'm convinced it should have been. Ironically, Virgin, who released Raindance, categorically wanted to release a song called Crown of Thorns as a single. And Crown of Thorns was an overt critique of religion, um, organized religion, excuse me. And um, I was amazed they chose that. I was really pleased because I really liked the song. But it was, you know, Think about it. George Michael left Wham! and came out with Careless Whisper, which is a beautiful record. Um, I came out with a song which is musically very strong, I think, Crown of Thorns. But lyrically, you know, especially in the States, they weren't going to get on board with that. (laughs) Uh, And I was I was oblivious to that. You know, the part of me that wrote I Don't Want to Be a Hero. Just that's what I thought I wanted. I wanted to do that. That's what I grew up listening to. The Isleys, Stevie. Lennon and McCartney had something to say. They wanted to influence the world in their way, in the positive. So you did that through the lyrics you wrote. 
And um, I just went off on one. You know, throughout the 90s and 2000s, I got more environmental. All my solo stuff had had a message. So Journey Songs 1 is the 90s stuff. And then Journey Songs 2 is coming out. I'm actually working on it in my studio here. Journey Songs 2 is coming out as my recordings, late 90s, early 2000s, before rejoining Johnny Hates Jazz, which I did in 2009. Um, and that's got some really, really cool stuff on it. An album called Tomorrow, which I released in 2007, um, is an environmental album. But anyone who likes Johnny Hates Jazz, and people often say that when they hear it in my Journey Songs live stream, because I've been going through those songs recently, go, oh my goodness, that is. That actually sounds quite Johnny Hates Jazz, but in a kind of a grown-up way. Well, yeah, it, that's what it is. Um, so that's going to be a very cool album. Um, and then following that, I rejoined, and me and Mike did an album called Magnetize, and then Wide Awake, and here we are. Fantastic. So if people want to catch up with what you're doing, where's the best place to get you? Well, the best place to find me is you can go to clarkbatcher.com, but I would say find me on YouTube, YouTube dot com forward slash Clark actual official, but especially Facebook is where for some reason I know Facebook seems a bit antiquated to some people these days, but <laughs> Facebook.com forward slash Clark Bachelor Official. Um and of course you can find Johnny H Jazz at johnnyhjazz.com. Um but I'm really, really active on Facebook and on YouTube. So you know if you want to reach out, I'm there and I will respond. That's fantastic. Clark, thank you so much for chatting today. It's been amazing. Thank you, Robbie. Great questions. Thank you, man. Thanks for joining me on today's show. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did making it. A special thanks to Clark Datula. Don't forget to share, like, and subscribe to the show as much as possible and check out the YouTube channel. Join me next time I speak to author David Mayer about the Bee Gees in the 80s. To play us out, Clark Datula and Shattered Dreams of the Ukraine. If you can, please donate. I'll see you next time. So much for your promises They died the day you let me go up in a web of lies, but it was just too late to know. I thought it was you who said they died for me. Make sure to subscribe and leave us a review.